Bible, the Bible's in the pews. You just ask someone to pass one to you or lean around or whatever it is. Jeremiah 40, verse 1. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had released him at Ramah. He had found Jeremiah bound in chains among all the captives from Jerusalem and Judah who were being carried into exile in Babylon. When the commander of the guard found Jeremiah, he said to him, The Lord your God decreed this disaster for this place, and now the Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord and did not obey him. But today I'm freeing you from the chains on your wrists. Come with me to Babylon if you like, and I'll look after you. But if you don't want to, then don't come. Look, the whole country lies before you. Go wherever you please. However, before Jeremiah turned to go, Nebuzaradan added, Go back to Gedaliah, son of Ahakim, son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the towns of Judah, and live with him among the people, or go anywhere else you please. Then the commander gave him provisions and a present and let him go. So Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, son of Ahakim at Mizpah, and stayed with him among the people who were left behind in the land. When all the army officers and their men who were still in the open country heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah son of Ahikim as governor over the land, put him in charge of the men, women and children who were the poorest in the land, who had not been carried into exile to Babylon, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael son of Nathaniah, Johanan and Jonathan the sons of Korea, Sariah son of Tahumeth, the sons of Ephi, the Nephite, and Jarzaniah, the son of the Markathite, and their men. Gedaliah, son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, took an oath to reassure them and their men. Do not be afraid to serve the Babylonians, he said. Settle down in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will go well with you. I myself will stay in Mitzpah to represent you before the Babylonians who come to us. But you are to harvest the wine, summer fruit, and oil. Put them in your storage jars. Live in all the towns you've taken over. When all the Jews in Moab, Ammon, Eden and all the other countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, as governor over them, they all came back to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah from all the countries where they had been scattered and they harvested an abundance of wine and summer fruit. Johanan, the son of Korea and all the army officers still in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, don't you know that Baalis, king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikim, did not believe them. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, said privately to Gedaliah in Mizpah, Let me go and kill Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and no one will know it. Why should he take your life and cause all the Jews who are gathered around you to be scattered, and the remnant of Judah to perish? But Gedaliah, son of Ahikim, said to Johanan, son of Korea, Don't do such a thing. What you're saying about Ishmael is not true. In the seventh month, Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, the son of Elashama, who was of royal blood, had been one of the king's officers, came with ten men to Gedaliah, son of Ahikim at Mizpah. While they were eating together there, Ishmael, son of Nathaniah, and the ten men who were with him, got up and struck down Gedaliah, son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, with a sword, killing the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed as governor over the land. Ishmael also killed all the Jews who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah, as well as the Babylonian soldiers who were there. The day after Gedaliah's assassination, before anyone knew about it, 
Eighty men who had shaved off their beards, torn their clothes, cut themselves, came from Shechem, Shiloh and Samaria, bringing grain offerings and incense with them to the house of the Lord. Ishmael, son of Nathaniel, went out to Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went. When he met them, he said, Come to Gedaliah, son of Ahikim. When they went into the city, Ishmael, son of Nathaniel, and the men who were with him, slaughtered them, threw them into a cistern. But ten of them said to Ishmael, Don't kill us. We have wheat and barley, oil and honey hidden in a field. So he let them alone and did not kill them with the others. Now the cistern where he threw all the bodies of the men who had been killed, along with Gedaliah, was the one king Asa had made as part of his defense against Barsha, king of Israel. Ishmael, son of Nathaniel, filled it with the dead. Ishmael made captives of all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, along with all the others who were left there, over whom Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard, had appointed Gedaliah, son of Ahikim. Ishmael, son of Nathaniel, took them captive and set out to cross over to the Ammonites. When Johanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers who were with him heard about all the crimes Ishmael, son of Nathaniel, had committed, they took all their men and went to fight Ishmael, son of Nathaniel. They caught up with him near the great pool in Gibeon. When all the people Ishmael had with him saw Johanan, son of Korea, and the army officers who were with him, they were glad. All the people Ishmael had taken captive at Mizpah turned, went over to Johanan, son of Korea. But Ishmael, son of Nathaniel, and eight of his men escaped from Johanan and fled to the Ammonites. This is the word of God. I guess as you read a story like that, forgetting the complicated names, you could read it in almost any event in any nation around the world today where anarchy begins to reign. In the desperate days <coughs> following the fall of Jerusalem, let me simply state three things about Jeremiah's experience of suffering with the people of God. Because I want to say, if you remember nothing else this morning, that if you're a Christian, it will involve suffering with the people of God. Maybe you've not realised that yet. Not been a Christian very long. If you have, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, three things very simply. First of all, the word which Jeremiah received. Chapter 40, verses 1 to 4. As so often in the past, Jeremiah receives, the chapter begins, very familiar phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. For 40 years, the word of the Lord had been coming to Jeremiah. Way back at the beginning of Jeremiah, way back in our series, if you can think that far back, the opening verses tell us this, Jeremiah 1, 1 to 3. <clears throat> the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of Anathoth, in the territory of Benjamin, the word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. As promised, the Lord spoke to Jeremiah again and again, and all that has happened, happened. And now the final event has happened. The people of Jerusalem have been carried off into exile. So was that it for Jeremiah? Imagine, what does Jeremiah think at this point? Is my prophetic career over? The Lord promised to speak to me right down to this year, this event. Now the event has happened. Is that it? Has the Lord nothing left to say to me? 
or through me? And the opening verse of chapter 40 gives us and Jeremiah a clear answer. Look at it again. The word of the Lord, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, had released him at Ramah. He had found Jeremiah bound in chains among all the captives from Jerusalem and Judah who were being carried into exile in Babylon. Uh, we learned from our previous study in chapter 39 that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had given orders for Jeremiah not to be harmed, but to be helped. And he'd been found by enemy soldiers and released from imprisonment and handed over to Gedaliah. Now what we have in chapter 40 is either a fuller account of what had happened or maybe Jeremiah has got caught up again and caught it off with the rest of the prisoners in chains. Whatever the case, he comes to this place called Ramah, which is about five miles north of Jerusalem, and the Babylonians use it as a transit camp, a processing centre, where people are brought there, and then sent off into exile in Babylon, or worse. And there Jeremiah is recognised, and acting on orders from the top, the commander of the guard, this man called Nebuzaradan, orders him to be released. But there is a more important message for Jeremiah than just the message that he is to be freed. There is a word from the Lord. But will you notice what makes it quite remarkable? Is that he receives a message from the Lord through a Babylonian. The commander of the guard, did you notice what he said to Jeremiah? Were you surprised? Here's this Babylonian speaking to Jeremiah the prophet and he says, The Lord your God decreed this disaster for this place. And now the Lord has brought it about. He has done just as he said he would. All this happened because you people sinned against the Lord and didn't obey him. Well, it's the same message Jeremiah has been preaching for 40 years. A message which the people of Judah failed to listen to and pay any attention to. And now a Babylonian general says, yeah, I agree. It's confirmation for Jeremiah from a very strange source and a condemnation for the people of Judah. You see, when God speaks, he sometimes uses very strange means and characters. Even on one occasion, praise the Lord, a donkey. So praise the Lord for those who sometimes feel like donkeys. <laughs> to speak his word. And his word always comes as a, as a reassurance to his faithful people and as a rebuke to his unbelieving people as a reassurance to his faithful people and a rebuke to his unbelieving people. And I just pause for a moment to ask you, which category do you fall into? When you hear God's word, from whatever source, when you see God acting, sometimes in judgment, does it confirm you in your faith or condemn you in your unbelief? It will always do one of those two things. In his book on Jeremiah, Be Decisive, the American pastor and preacher Warren Wisby comments, the Babylonian captain of the guard preached a sermon that sounded a great deal like what Jeremiah had been saying for 40 years. It must have been embarrassing for the Jews to hear a Babylonian tell them they were sinners. But he was writing what he said. As God's people, we have to bow in shame when the world publicly announces the sins of the saints. Is that not true? We have to bow in shame sometimes when the world publicly announces the sins of the saints. So it's a very unusual word from the Lord because of its source. But it's also unusual in a second respect. Because unlike most of the messages Jeremiah received, which he was to pass on to the nation, 
This is different. It is a personal word from the Lord for Jeremiah himself in his particular situation. Following his instructions from the top, Nebuzaradan, this commander, says to Jeremiah, but today I am freeing you from the chains on your wrist. Come with me to Babylon if you like. Look after you. I'll look after you. But if you don't want to, don't come. Look, the whole country lies before you. Go wherever you please. So here's the second thing. A message from the Lord. Secondly, the choices Jeremiah faced. Must have been a strange experience for Jeremiah. After all these years of oppression, difficulty, after these final weeks and months as the siege got worse, he's imprisoned in the courtyard of the guard. He's not only freed from his chains now, but he is free to choose his future. In the Tyndale commentary on Jeremiah, R.K. Harrison comments, when others were being taken unwillingly into captivity, Jeremiah was given complete freedom of choice by the enemy of Judah. Now, notice as you look at the text here, Jeremiah is given three options. He's got a, a choice. First of all, Nebuzaradan extends an invitation to Babylon. Come with me to Babylon, he says, if you like, I'll look after you. You see, Jeremiah is quite popular with the Babylonians. No doubt their informers have been telling them that Jeremiah has been encouraging the people to submit to Babylonian rule. So, here's Jeremiah. This is a very promising option, is it not? He, he's offered a good retirement, probably with a decent pension, in one of the greatest cities of the world to go to Babylon. Moreover, there is a Jewish community already in Babylon of people who had been carted off there previously. And Jeremiah knew from the Lord that the future of God's people lay with the exiles in Babylon who would one day return, or their descendants would. And who's there? Well, there's a young man there called Daniel. And his friends, he's been there almost 20 years. He's risen to a position of prominence in the empire of Babylon, of all places. And there's another young man called Ezekiel, who was taken there 11 years ago, and for the past five years has been preaching the word of the Lord, a fellow prophet for Jeremiah. You can imagine thinking, wow, this would be a great retirement option. I'll go and sit with a few prophets and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the word of the Lord. Share spiritual experiences. What a chance for an elderly, worn-out prophet to interact with like-minded people. It must have been tempting to accept. But Nebuchadnezzar says, you don't have to. You're free to do what you like. Jeremiah is given an opportunity, secondly, to go wherever he wants. If you don't want to go, then don't come. Look, the whole country is, lies before you. Go wherever you please. Maybe at last, Jeremiah, after 40 years, can be rid of the people of God. In Babylon... Or in Judah. He would not be the first and he certainly wouldn't be the last servant of God to be tempted by such an offer. And who could blame him if he took it? But Nebuzaradan, who's already shown a surprising knowledge of the Lord God of Israel and his people, suspects, I think, what Jeremiah's going to do. And so he makes a suggestion that Jeremiah can stay with the people in Judah. However, he says, before Jeremiah turned to go, Nebuzaradan added, go back to Gedaliah, son of Ahakim, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the towns of Judah, live with him among the people, or if you want to, go anywhere you please. You remember the Babylonians had deported all the people who counted, 
all the influential people, there was a kind of rabble of poor people left and a few army guerrillas wandering the countryside. And they'd appointed this man Gedaliah to govern on their behalf. And Nebuchadnezzar suggests, why don't you go to him? Maybe not just for protection, but also to support him as he seeks to establish some kind of law and order in the nation. But Jeremiah doesn't have to go. All the options are open to Jeremiah. And when you notice something very interesting at this point, he doesn't receive any direct word from the Lord telling him what he should do. I wonder what decision he would have taken if you'd stood in his sandals. Maybe you are standing in his sandals or you've stood in a similar place. Maybe you've suffered, not just with the people of God, but at the hands of the people of God and the tongues of the people of God. Maybe you're suffering consequences that were not of your making. And at this point, Babylon sounds like a pretty good option. Or maybe anywhere else other than with the people of God. You were tired. Not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually drained. What should you do? What does the Lord want you to do? And maybe you're thinking about this. And you can't seem to get any special word from the Lord. And you thumb through your Bible and you ask the Lord, tell me what I should do. May I suggest, like Nebuchadnezzar, I'm with the greatest of sympathy because I know where you are and some of us have been there, that you don't need a special word from the Lord because you really know what you should do. And Jeremiah knew for once, having received provisions and a present from Nebuchadnezzar, look at the decision he took. So Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, son of Ahakim at Mizpah, and stayed with him among the people who were left behind in the land. Verse 6. Now, you've got to ask yourself at this point, why did he choose that option? Well, it wasn't because of what he was going to get out of it. As we see thirdly and finally, the consequences Jeremiah experienced. Jeremiah goes to Mizpah, a few miles north of Jerusalem, where Gedaliah has set up his administrative headquarters. And he joins him there. And when you notice the development that happens, to begin with, there are promising beginnings. Gedaliah is a good man with a good reputation. Those left behind in Judah, when they hear there's some stability, begin to rally to him, including the guerrilla groups led by army officers. There is at least a semblance of stability as he swears an oath and says, look, be loyal to the Babylonians. It won't be onerous. I'll look after you. I'll protect you. He tells them, look at all the crops that are lying on the vines, the olives and the grapes and the fruit trees. Go out there and bring in the harvest. And the result is the first shoots of prosperity. As they harvested, verse 12, an abundance of wine and summer fruit. I think you can read in it a foretaste of what the law of Moses promised, that when people obey the Lord, God blessed his people Israel materially. We aren't given any information about Jeremiah at this point. But no doubt he's delighted to see the first shoots of recovery. And can I say perhaps also there's a sense of kind of deja vu here for Jeremiah. See, if you know your Bible, 40 years before when he began his ministry, there was a good king, Josiah, on the throne. And his secretary was Gedaliah's grandfather. 
And for a time it looked like the nation was going to really prosper. But such hopes proved, as they do here, to be short-lived. While Gedaliah is a good man, he's a very naive man. For he fails to heed the warnings of the threats against his life by one of the army leaders. Harrison comments again on Gedaliah's failing. When informed, Gedaliah was evidently unable to accept the fact that others were less sincere than himself in his desire for national stability. To think well of others is not the worst of failings, is it? But in Gedaliah's case, it cost him his life. And for the people of Judah, it meant that promising beginnings were followed by disastrous developments. One of the army officers who's rallied around him is a man named Ishmael. While it appears that he supports the new administration, it soon becomes clear to everyone except Gedaliah that he has a different agenda. Although he may mask his ambitions behind a crusade to free people from the Babylonian yoke, his real aim is to gain power for himself. We read that he's of royal blood. Perhaps it's a bit myth that he's been passed over by the Babylonians in favour of Gedaliah to head up the administration. And so in an act of treachery, verses 1 to 4, he breaks every convention of hospitality by murdering Gedaliah and his supporters and the Babylonian soldiers who are present as well. And this is followed by an act of unwarranted and great brutality as he meets a group of 80 pilgrims coming in to mourn the, de the destruction of the city. They're probably meeting at the shattered site of the temple. And he deceives them, brings them in, slaughters them, throws their body into a system with the exception of 10 of them who offer him a bribe of provisions. And as so often, when morality goes out the window, so does sense as Ishmael compounds everything with his stupidity. Having done this, he tries to escape to the nation of Ammon, nearby, where he's allied himself with the king of Ammon, a man called King Barlis. Does he really think he can rebel against Babylon and get away with it? As it turns out, he's pursued by one of the other army officers in Judah, led by Jonathan, a man loyal to Gedaliah, and they're overtaken, it says, near the great pool of Gibeon. Uh, the site's been excavated, uh, a man-made pool about 82 feet deep, uh, still exists today. And much to their delight, the captives are freed, but Ishmael and eight of his men escape to Ammon. What now of the people of Judah and their future? Ishmael has jeopardized everything for his own personal ambition. Now you say, what is the application? The application, if you've been a Christian any length of time, is all too obvious. It's a tragic story, which is repeated in all sorts of contexts. I have no doubt that there are Christians here this morning who saw or know of promising beginnings of unity, blessing in a local church, only to see it devastated by the personal ambition of someone seeking power, hidden under a disguise of spiritual self-justification. There are whole denominations that have been destroyed by such things. Church of Jesus Christ sadly is littered by such examples. So what do you do when you're part of something like that? When you experience something like that? Well, you face the same choice as Jeremiah did. You can give up and retire to Babylon and have done with the people of God. Or you can do whatever you please and go wherever you please. Or like Jeremiah you can choose to suffer with the people of God. 
You see, it's possible that Jeremiah, almost certain, Jeremiah was one of those carried off when Ishmael's coup d'etat took place. As we'll see, God willing, as we continue this series, even after he's rescued, his story doesn't have a happy ending. He ends up being carted off again to Egypt. No one knows how Jeremiah dies. His story ends in obscurity. You know, we must get away from reading Hollywood into our faith. You know, every Christian story ends with a happy ending. No, many Christians die in obscurity. Many Christians die as the suffering people of God. Just read your newspapers. Read about the Christian bookstore manager who was taken, tortured, beaten and murdered in Gaza City this very last week or two. One among thousands. There are Christians who die of sickness. There are Christians who die of dementia. It's not a nice business. And somehow we've got this idea that all of our Christian stories are supposed to end with happy ever ending. Yes, they do, but not in this life. Some of us live and die suffering with the people of God. Nonetheless, it doesn't mean that Jeremiah made a bad choice to remain with the people of God. He lived by faith and he died by faith. Still living in hope. And in choosing to suffer with the people of God, he's following in a long line. Remember the book of Hebrews gives a wonderful roll call of faith and it describes one of his predecessors. You remember Moses? Living by faith, by faith Moses, when he'd grown up. Refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking forward to his reward. So let me speak as we kind of draw to a conclusion. I know our time is gone, but I want to say I think it's important. Just stay with me, all right? To those who have chosen a different option at this time from Jeremiah and Moses. A couple of years after I arrived here in October 1994, we commissioned the Christian Research Association to do a full survey of the congregation here in Charlotte Chapel. Some of you are here then. Another survey followed it and showed pretty much the same results. Of that first survey, it's very interesting. There were some really interesting surprises. In that first survey, 912 different people passed through the doors of Charlotte Chapel morning and evening. Different people. There are about 1,300 in total, but some of them came twice. That was one of the surprises. Only a third came twice. Surprise. Of the 912 people, only 48% were members of Charlotte Chapel. Okay. Are you good at maths? Take away 80 visitors, which was another big surprise. Take away the handful, the, the sad to us handful, who said they were not Christians, definitely. And you're left with 300 plus people who were worshipping that day, who were not members of Charlotte Chapel and not members of any other church. But they were professing Christians. So... The survey didn't give the answer, but I've asked the question, why not? Well, some are Christians, and I understand your sincerity, who say to me, or if not to me, to someone else, or to themselves, I worship here regularly, I don't need to sign up for any kind of membership, where's that in the Bible? And my answer is, 
It's in the same place where I tell people to look who say, I'm living with my partner, why should I go through a formal kind of marriage? Where's that in the Bible? Neither in the Bible. It's a practical outworking of identifying yourself with the people of God. There's no blueprint in Scripture. It means a commitment to the local body of Christ, just as it is to the commitment to a marriage. But let me speak more importantly to those of you who have suffered with the people of God and through the people of God and you feel like a betrayed spouse who says, I'm never going to trust anybody again. And I feel your pain. But what I want to say to you is you don't belong in Babylon. Which is probably why you're here in church this morning. Because you know that. And you have only two remaining options. To suffer with the people of God or to suffer alone. To suffer with the people of God or to suffer alone. Let me conclude and I really am concluding. But the greatest reason I can give you for choosing to suffer with the people of God. We began with Rembrandt's picture of Jeremiah lamenting over Jerusalem. Now, roll the clock forward 600 years. Same scene. Same place. The city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt. It's a magnificent city. The walls are strong. It's been repopulated. One of the great cities of the world. And there's a fantastic, magnificent temple to replace the one that the Babylonians knocked down. Well, the later one after that. Built by Herod the Great. Well, that's what he called himself. But outside the city is another man like Jeremiah. God himself in human flesh. Jesus. Weeping over Jerusalem. Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. As he approaches it for the final time. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And unlike Jeremiah, who looked back 40 years, he looks forward 40 years and sees the fate of the city as though it had already happened. The days will come upon you. When your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you and hem you in on every side, they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. So knowing this, what did he do? Does he return to heaven, giving up on God's people as a lost cause? No, while we see Jeremiah suffering with the people of God, we see Jesus suffering for the people of God. Jewish commentators saw the terrible sufferings of Jeremiah described in the words of Isaiah, one of his predecessors, the suffering servant of the Lord. But they apply more accurately, were fulfilled more completely in one greater than Jeremiah. Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, pressed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
These words were fulfilled when Jesus suffered and died outside the city of Jerusalem for the people of God. Took a Babylonian soldier to affirm God's word to Jeremiah. Took a Roman soldier to be the first to identify Jesus as he died and uttered his last cry. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. If he wasn't the first, he certainly wasn't the last. And I trust today you've made that same confession. And that like Jeremiah and the Lord Jesus, you are prepared to suffer with the people of God. For God's word says, and it's surely true, that only if we suffer with him shall we reign with him. That's our future hope. Let's pray together.